Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 23 with me. Luke 23, and let's read verse 31, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Luke 23, verse 31 says, For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word now this morning. I pray, Lord, that as we consider the passage before us, we consider the words of our Saviour, that, Lord, you would speak to our hearts this morning, that you would refresh and bless us by your word, that, Lord, we would leave singing your praises, giving glory to your name. I pray that, Lord, you would empower me now through the Spirit and your wisdom and guidance as I speak, (coughs) that it would be... Uh, your words, that will be your thoughts this morning, that Lord, you would receive all glory, honour and praise, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, of course, we've been going through a study of the, the parables of our Lord, and we started with uh, these parable sayings, these short sayings of our Lord, and looking at each of them. And this morning, we come to the one that's found here in verse 31, probably one we're not real familiar with. It says, for if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? So that's a little parable saying that we want to uh, consider this morning. And this is the only time we see uh, the Lord use this particular saying. And it's interesting that these are actually his last recorded words in the scriptures before he is crucified. These are the final words of our Lord before he is crucified. Of course, after this, he he makes those sayings from the cross, those seven, seven sayings from the cross. But these are his final words before the cross. And you know, that fact alone should make them of great interest to us as believers, shouldn't they? They should make us want to know what he's talking about here. What exactly is the Lord referring to here in this passage? And the parable saying itself is said to have been in common use in Israel at this time. And so the Lord is, and he's done it before, he's taken a parable that's known and he's using it to teach a spiritual truth and it's a saying that makes a comparison here between a lush green tree and one that is dry and dead and in particular that it presents the idea that you know a lush green tree is hard to burn but a dead tree is easily kindled easily destroyed Uh, Spurgeon he wrote this he said if when fires are raging in the forest The green trees full of sap and moisture crackle like stubble in the flame. How much more will the old dry trees burn which are already rotten to the core and turn to touch wood and be prepared as fuel for the furnace? So that's the comparison here. The comparison, the parable is really that, you know, if a green tree is burning, how much more will the dry tree burn? And really it's an analogy or a metaphor, if you like, for the innocent and the guilty. The innocent and the guilty both suffering under judgment. It's interesting, uh, sorry, it's suggested that the saying originated from the words of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 20. Let's turn over there. 
I read the words there. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20. And we just want to read from verse, excuse me, verse 47. It says, And say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in thee, and it shall devour every green tree in thee, and every dry tree. The flame, flaming flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be buried therein. And so here in Ezekiel, uh, we see that Ezekiel is told to prophesy here against the, the forest of the south, and he is to uh, prophesy that the fire of judgment will consume all in its path, both the green tree and the dry tree. And the prophecy really is teaching that the, the coming judgment at the hand of the Babylonian army would affect all people. It would affect even those who were seemingly righteous. Everyone would be affected. And so we can see how this parable uh, probably did originate from Ezekiel, Ezekiel's words. They're very similar uh, wordings here. But in any case, it's this particular parable about the green tree and the dry tree that Christ uses here in Luke chapter 23. You know, the question this morning, as we've asked with each of these parable sayings, is really, why? Why does the Lord speak this particular parable? You know, what motivated him to speak these words here? And why does the Lord speak? What's he trying to teach us? What's he declaring by these words? Well, as always, we need to start by considering the context, don't we? The context in which this parable saying was given. And so consider, first of all, with me here this morning, the occasion of the parable. The occasion of the parable. And to do that, let's, let's pick up the story back in verse 1, Luke chapter 23, verse 1. Let's just read the context here. <clears throat> Luke 23, verse 1 says, And as the whole multitude of them arose... Uh, sorry, and the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. And Pilate uh, then sent Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more, more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, uh, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew uh, that he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him uh, in many words, uh, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. On the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and, and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I have an examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you, you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. 
I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto, Barabbas, uh, unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them, but they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. <clears throat> and they were insistent with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voice of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And as, soon as, uh, and as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. I know that was a long passage to read, but it's the, the context of the passage this morning. You know, before us there in Luke chapter 23, are there familiar events? Well, they are familiar to most of us, I'm sure. Familiar events of Christ standing trial before Pilate and then before Herod and then going back to Pilate once more. And both men examine and seek to question the Lord and both of them conclude that he has done nothing worthy of death. Both of them conclude that he is innocent. And it's clear from the passage, it's Pilate's desire to release the Lord. That's what he wants to do. <clears throat> he wants to release the Lord because he knows he's not guilty. But of course, the people cry out, crucify him, crucify him. You know, the people refused Pilate's judgment, his judgment that Christ was innocent. And they demanded that he be instead led out and crucified there on the cross. If we were to read Matthew's gospel, we would read that when um, Pilate saw he couldn't prevail, he washed his hands of the situation and then he handed the Lord over to be crucified. Let's just go and read just that section, Matthew 27. <clears throat> just Matthew 27 and verse 24. <clears throat> it says, When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather that a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Matthew fills in a little bit more here. He talks about how he washed his hands. He said, I'm innocent of this. I know he's innocent. And they said, His blood be upon us. Pilate knew he was a just man an innocent man but he consented out of fear of the jews and in verse 26 there we read that before he delivered him up to be crucified it says he scourged jesus now that scourging of course was with the roman cat of nine tails and that scourging would have left the lord disfigured left him in a weakened state from extreme blood loss now it was not uncommon for prisoners to actually die from the scourging alone that's how severe this scourging was that the Lord went through and Matthew goes on and tells us that then the soldiers stripped him of his robe his garments they put a crown of thorns on his head and a robe and they ridicule him read verse 27 there Matthew 27 <clears throat> verse 27 it says then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus 
into the common hall and gathered under him the whole band of soldiers and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe and when they plaited a crown of thorns they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying hail king of the jews and they spat upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head and after they had mocked him and took the robe off from him they put his own raiment on him and they led him away to crucify him so christ here has been scourged he's then had the crown of thorns put on his head the robe they've mocked him they have ridiculed him and now they've taken the robe off, they left the crown of thorns on his head, and they now led him out through the streets as a spectacle before men in this terrible state. You think about what the Lord would look looked like now, after he's been scourged, after he's had the crown of thorns on his head. His body is broken, his body is torn. There's blood streaming down his face, there's blood streaming down his back. Our Lord is in such a weakened state that they enlist the help of another man we'll read that in a second unable to carry his cross they enlist the, the 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 man simon there we'll read at verse 26 back in our present passage we'll go back to luke 23 now verse 26 there it says and as they led him away they laid hold upon one simon a cyrenian coming out of the country and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after jesus and so Christ is in such a weakened state from all of this that he can't bear his own cross. They enlist the help of Simon to go after him carrying his cross. And so here you have this procession and Christ is being led out in his, this horrible weakened state, led out through the streets for all to witness, for all to, to look at and behold. It's a spectacle. You know, public executions in those days drew great crowds. And Christ's execution is no different. In verse 27 there of our passage, it says, And there followed him a great company of people. He's followed by a great company. His, his execution is no different. Everybody is, is following there, witnessing this take place. You know, most of those in the crowd were rejoicing at what they saw. They're rejoicing to see Jesus in such a terrible state because they're the same ones who had just cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And so now as they follow this procession, they're rejoicing to see Christ in this state. This is a hostile crowd. This is a crowd full of hatred, full of scorn. But Luke tells us that not all in the crowd were cold. Not all in the crowd were indifferent towards the Lord. And he, he tells us here that there were some who were sympathetic to his plight. Read verse 27 again with me. It says, and there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. And so there is amongst this crowd, there is a group of women who are following, and they are distressed by what they've witnessed. They're distressed, they're bewailing, they're lamenting to see Christ in this horrible state. You know, they're the few amongst the whole crowd who actually their hearts aren't hardened to what they're witnessing they see christ battered and bruised and they're sorry for him they lament that such a terrible thing has happened to one who was a good person i mean they knew christ they'd seen him around everyone knew who he was and they lament that such a terrible thing is happening to him henriksen writes this 
as with great difficulty, Jesus was moving on and they noticed his bruised features, his utterly tired appearance. They wept. Their hearts were going out to him in genuine sympathy. In fact, they were beating their breasts and lamenting him. And so there is this group of women amongst the whole crowd who are distressed by what they see. There's genuine sympathy on their behalf towards Christ. Now, we would probably want to naturally associate these women with those who were known to be Christ's disciples. You know, we want to associate this with maybe those women who came to the, the tomb on that first resurrection morning. But it seems clear from the passage that these women referred to here are not his disciples. Christ himself in verse 28, he calls them daughters of Jerusalem. They're daughters of Jerusalem. These are simply women of Jerusalem who are genuinely concerned by what they're seeing, by what they're witnessing the Romans do to someone who was a good person, a good man. They're distressed by it. Hendrickson writes this, these daughters of Jerusalem must not be confused with women such as Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, etc., who out of their own substance had helped to support Jesus and the Twelve. Those women were disciples of Jesus. The daughters of Jerusalem were not. And this fact explains what immediately now follows. You see, what follows now from the Lord is a warning of judgment to come. The Lord turns and he responds to their grieving. He responds by showing great concern for their own situation, for what they face in the future. So that brings us now secondly to consider the warning in the parable. We've looked at the occasion of the parable. It's as Christ is going through the streets of, the, of Jerusalem in his battered, bruised state. That's the occasion. Let's look now at the warning in the parable. Read with me verse 28. It says, And Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, and in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall we done in the dry? You see, here we see the Lord now. He responds to their weeping, their lamenting. He turns and he responds to them. And he warns the daughters of Jerusalem here. He warns them. And the parable saying really forms the concluding statement of his warning. It's the concluding statement. It sums it all up. And so we'll get to it in a minute. But let's look at his warning first. Christ begins his response there in verse 28 by telling the daughters of Jerusalem not to weep for him, but instead to weep for themselves and to weep for their own children. Look there in verse 28. It says, But Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but for yourselves and for your children. Christ turns around and he says, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. You know, immediately hearing this response from the Lord, you know, this warning that he's about to give them, immediately we can see it's motivated by his compassion, isn't it? It's motivated by the Savior's love. His love and his concern for the people. You see, Christ knows what's ahead for them. 
He knows what's ahead in the near future. He knows that judgment is coming. And he's concerned for them. He's concerned about the suffering that they're going to face. And you notice that he's more concerned about them than he is about himself in his own terrible, battered, bruised state right now. One commentator said this, he said, Though right now he is agonizing and through the next several hours he will be suffering the torments of hell, his future is secure. But unless these women repent, theirs is not. Neither is that of their children. You see, that's our Lord's concern in this moment. It's not his own suffering. His concern in this moment is them, their spiritual state, what's coming for them in the future. The suffering of the people that he loved. The suffering of the people that he was about to die for on the cross. Christ knew what was ahead for them, both here on earth and also in eternity. Another commentator wrote this. He said, the, the self-forgetful attitude of Jesus is surely most instructive. He thinks not of himself, but of their hard case, even though on his journey to the cross. It is the most perfect consideration of others' welfare and the most beautiful forgetfulness of one's own that he here exhibits. It's true, isn't it? It's a beautiful example of Christ's compassionate concern for others instead of himself. You know, I don't know about you, but his love and concern for others is a rebuke unto us, isn't it? It's a rebuke because how often are we so consumed with our own trivial little troubles, little concerns, that we can't see the needs of others. We can't see the spiritual needs of those around us. But our Saviour, he saw their need. He saw what they were about to face. And his heart is breaking. His heart is going out to them. Even now as he's suffering greatly, his heart is for them. His heart is for all people. In verse 29, we begin to understand what it is that's grieving the Lord so much. Verse 29, it says, For behold, the days are coming, in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Christ here declares, He says, Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and your children, because there's coming a day very soon when you will count it a blessing not to have children. You'll count it a blessing to be barren. Now, this, of course, is the reverse of the norm, isn't it? You know, the Jews in particular, they counted a great blessing of God to have children. And if you didn't have children, you were seen as being cursed by God. You must have done something wrong. But here Christ declares that there was a day fast approaching when the very opposite would be true. They would count it a blessing not to have children. You see, with prophetic eye here, the Lord is looking forward and he sees the coming destruction upon Jerusalem. That's the near fulfillment here. He sees the destruction that is soon going to come upon Jerusalem at the hand of the Romans. Christ knew the great suffering that they would soon face as, as the Romans came under Titus in AD 70 and they laid siege to Jerusalem. And that siege would last five months and it was a horrifying ordeal for the people. One commentator wrote this. He said, judgment would come upon Israel in the form of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That judgment was extremely grievous for the Jews. One million 
100,000 of them were slain in the siege and the rest were carried captive or sold for slaves. You see, Christ, the eternal Son of God, the omniscient Son of God, He knows what's ahead, doesn't He? And He sees the suffering that they're about to go through. And this is just a temporal suffering. He also sees their eternal suffering as well. You see, these people have rejected Him They've rejected their Messiah and judgment was now coming and Christ could see it vividly. He could see it as if it had already occurred. And it grieved him to know what they would face. It especially grieved him to know what the women and the children were about to face. You see, the historians tell us that the conditions became so terrible during those five months of the siege that some women turned to cannibalism. They ate their own children. Christ knows that's about to happen. That's why Christ turns and he says, Weep not for me, weep for yourselves and your children. That's why he says in those days you'll count it a blessing not to have children. And then Christ adds to this in verse 30 as he declares that in that day they will cry out for the mountains and the hills to fall upon them. Verse 30 says then, shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. It's so, so great, so terrible would the judgment be that the people were going to cry out for the mountains to cover them. They would want any end to the suffering. Gil writes this, he said, they would choose rather that the mountains and hills round about Jerusalem should fall upon them. And they should be buried under the ruins of them than live in such terrible distress or fall into the hands of their enemies. You see, the judgment that was coming was severe. It was terrible. But it was just. The people had turned away from God. They'd rejected their Messiah. And now judgment was coming. And it was coming at the hands of the very ones who were inflicting such suffering upon Christ right now, the Romans. That suffering would come upon them at the hand of the Romans. You see, it's only now, after Christ has given this warning, that Christ now gives the parable statement in verse 31. Christ says, he says, For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Christ now delivers the parable to conclude and sum up what he's just warned them about. You see, in the parable, saying the green tree is the Lord Jesus Christ. These women are mourning, they're lamenting at seeing him suffer such terrible treatment at the hand of the Romans. But if the Romans would do such terrible things to one who is the green tree, one who is innocent, and Pilate knew he was innocent, what more shall be done unto the dry? And the dry tree, of course, is the nation of Israel. They were not innocent. The nation of Israel was guilty, as we've said. And the day of judgment was fast approaching when they would burn. The dry tree would burn. They would suffer greatly at the hand of the Romans. See, if the Romans would treat someone like Christ who was innocent so terribly, what were they going to do to the nation who was guilty? And indeed, the nation was guilty. When the Romans besieged Jerusalem... The, the Jews were rebelling. So in the eyes of the Romans, they were guilty, weren't they? They were a rebellious nation. 
and they treated them as such. But of course, there is a far greater fulfillment here to this passage, isn't there? This is the near fulfillment we've talked about, the destruction that's going to come upon Jerusalem. But the fall of Jerusalem really was only a foreshadowing of a far greater judgment that was to come, that is to come. You see, the same words that we find in verse 30, they shall begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Those same words are also found in Revelation chapter 6. Let's turn over there. In Revelation 6, verse 16, we'll go back to verse 15. It says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and the rocks and the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? You see, here we see those same words repeated yet again. Here we see the cry of mankind in that great and terrible day of judgment, when the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth, the tribulation. Mankind in their suffering will cry out to the mountains, the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of God. But there will be no escape in the day of judgments. There will be no escape for those who have rejected the Lord. And so once more, the parable saying comes into view, doesn't it? You see, if God the Father poured out his wrath upon his only son, the green tree, when he was found to have imputed sin from all mankind, there on the cross how much worse will it be for unrepentant mankind, the dry, dead tree, when the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth? How much worse will it be? None shall escape. One commentator wrote this. He said, To be sure, Jesus suffered the agonies of hell, especially on Calvary. But when that suffering was finished, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, full of glory, honor, and power. But for the unrepentant sinner, the suffering will never end. Jerusalem's fall will only be a foretaste of their everlasting damnation. You see, Christ, the sinless Son of God, suffered the wrath of God for us there on the cross as He became sin for us. And if the green tree suffered, how much more shall the dry dead tree? How much more shall unsaved Mankind suffer for all eternity. Butler wrote this, If God did this to the son of his love, when he found sin but imputed to him, what shall he do to the generation of his wrath when he finds sin reigning in them? The judgment of eternal hell is horrifying beyond our imagination. Beloved, that is the burden that's on our Savior's heart that day as he's going out to the cross. That's the burden on his heart as he beholds the women mourning and bewailing his situation. He turns and he tells them, weep not for me, but for yourselves and for your own children. 
Christ's only concern in that moment was for them, to warn them, and indeed to warn all unrepentant mankind that judgment is coming. Beloved, our Saviour's love and compassion as He headed to the cross in His hour of suffering is truly wonderful to behold. He suffered, He went through all of that so that we might live. He suffered so that we might escape the wrath of God, so we might not burn in the day of judgment through faith in Him and His finished work there on the cross. You know, I wonder today, have you accepted that wonderful gift of salvation? Have you turned to the Lord and cried out in faith and asked Him to save you before it's eternally too late? Because without Christ, there is no hope to escape the judgment that is to come. Without Christ, we are a dry dead tree ready to be burned. You know, Christ here this morning in his love warns us to consider our situation. But not only consider our situation, to consider the situation of our family. Consider the situation of our friends, the people we work with, the people we meet. You see, they all likewise will suffer under the judgment that is to come unless they are saved before it's eternally too late. And beloved, we who are saved, we have the opportunity to warn them. So like our Savior, we need to get our eyes off ourselves and our own present troubles. Get our eyes on those around us in their situation. Get our eyes upon their spiritual condition and warn them before it is eternally too late. Exhibit the love of our Savior, the compassion of our Savior towards unsaved mankind. You know, Hendrickson summed up this passage really well when he said that this entire address is an unforgettable manifestation of the Savior's complete lack of self-pity and of his ardent desire even now that the unrepentant may repent and be saved. Beloved, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful to behold this morning? Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, the green tree who suffered in our place there on the cross. He took the wrath of God, your wrath, upon himself, the wrath that should be poured out upon us. We thank you so much for the salvation that is ours through faith in Christ. Lord, help us to get our eyes up and look at the situation of those around us. Lord, without Christ, they are destined eternity in hell, in the lake of fire, suffering, separation from you, unless they repent. Lord, may you help us today to exhibit our Savior's love under those around us. We thank you for your word. May you uh, speak to our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.